Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Getting ready to represent Christ to your world today. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. on this 15th of July. I think that makes it the Ides of July, which I don't actually know is a thing. The Ides of March is a thing. I don't know that the Ides of July is a thing. Um, But it's definitely July the 15th. Whatever you thought you were going to have done by this point in the year, I don't know. Did you get it all checked off? I probably did not. I have a long list today. Are you a list maker? I'm I'm a list maker, and my list today is already very, very long. Uh, things that I need to check off in anticipation of uh, being at the Northwestern Christian Writers Conference tomorrow and Saturday at the University of Northwestern St. Paul. If you're not already registered and you've got time uh, tomorrow evening and Saturday, love for you to still join us, NorthwesternChristianWritersConference.com. You can still um, you can still register. Yeah, and if you can't actually physically travel to uh, to the Twin Cities for this event, it's okay. You can join us online. Uh, and so it's one of those events where you can either come in person or you can join us online. All the information at NorthwesternChristianWritersConference.com. Registration, like, is open until it's not. I know. That's really specific. Hey, Nat is um, working the board today. Good morning, Nat. Good morning, Carmen. Do you want to give a shout out to your parents or, you know, anybody else? I'm sure they're sleeping, but my mother did say hi today when I left the house. Oh, I love that. And that was early. Yeah. What time did you What time did you head to the studio this morning? Uh, I was here by four. Yeah. So, thank you, Nat. Thank you. It's a It's a yeoman's task, but we appreciate that um, that you're with us this morning covering the boards. Uh, and so, Nat is making all the magic happen today, including getting our first guest for us, Ben Johnson, who's going to join us momentarily. I'm going to lead off this morning. I have so many headlines to cover with Ben. Um, I'm going to lead off with Cuba. Um, so if you are not up to speed on what is going on in Cuba, the people of Cuba um, have taken to the streets. Uh, Sunday, this past Sunday, there were demonstrations across cities in the nation of Cuba. And you would think and these are democratic uh, demonstrations, people you know, wanting to be liberated from the communist regime there. You would think that uh, the United States their immediate northern neighbor and, you know, pro-democracy nation would be interested in helping them. And yet, oddly, the Biden administration continues to um, frustrate the hopes of these pro-freedom demonstrators in Cuba, many of whom have now gone missing following this rare protest over the weekend against the island's communist dictatorship. And so Cuban authorities have cut off social media on the island in an apparent attempt to make it impossible for protesters to communicate with one another, um, for news about the protests to spread throughout the nation. Um, And Homeland Security um, Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas has responded to the ongoing crisis by saying earlier this week that anybody who attempts to 
leave Cuba and enter the United States, fleeing, you know, it, by coming, by seeking to travel the just over 50 miles via boat, is not going to be allowed into the United States, will be stopped by the U.S. Coast Guard, even if they have a legitimate asylum claim. Now, just pause there for a moment and ask yourself, what in the world is going on? That has not been the response of the Biden administration to the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people flowing to the U.S. southern border with Mexico uh, through Central American countries. And yet we have these pro-democracy protesters in Cuba who may well want to flee the communist regime under which they live uh, to make legitimate asylum claims here in the United States. And we're saying, no, no, don't seek to travel the 50 miles from Cuba to the United States. Um, We're not going to let you in. The Coast Guard's going to turn you around and send you back. I don't know why there's not more outrage, but there should be. That would be my personal opinion on these matters. On the issue of Internet access, it's actually possible for U.S. countries, including the very state of Miami. I mean, the state of Miami. (laughs) Sorry, the state of Florida via signals in Miami to actually provide. Did you know this? I didn't know this. Like we could be providing Internet access right now to the people of Cuba. Like I didn't know that was a thing possible thing, but we could be doing that. And that is something that the FCC could um, allow. And FCC Commissioner Brendan Carr, this is a little bit of hats off to, you know, to somebody in the administration. The FCC Commissioner Brendan Carr has been praising Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who issued a statement on Wednesday um, seeking to have the United States set up um, internet access, like to extend internet access in in Cuba, which has been cut off by the Cuban government because they don't want their people communicating with each other. Um, there's a number of headlines related to Cuba. Um, ben Johnson's going to join me next. He and I are going to actually take up other international um, concerns, leading off with concerns related to South Africa, where if you have not heard the news out of South Africa, um, it's not good. Things are devolving into um, into into looting and chaos there in ways that are um, really, really troubling. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right, so um, already getting feedback from you guys on the text line, which I totally appreciate. Remember, you can text me during the show at 877-933-2484. Um, good reminders um, from listeners to be praying for the people of Cuba, churches in Cuba, Christians in Cuba in particular, who have been you know, under, under threat for a very long period of time. And looking forward to... Um, to talking with Ben Johnson here in just a moment. We're going to pivot to headlines out of South Africa. Um, hey, let me um, let me lift up this headline to you this morning. Sam Brownback, who has joined us recently, um, he is the the Trump he was the Trump administration's um, ambassador for international religious freedom. Uh, you may also know him as a former governor of the state of Kansas. Um, Sam um, is continuing his efforts 
to lead conversations about international religious freedom. And he launched a conference on international religious freedom on this past Tuesday. And a number of the people who join us on a regular basis here on the show have actually been involved in the three-day IRF summit, um, building relationships not only here in the United States, but around the world uh, with, with churches, with other religious leaders and communities. Many uh, members of Congress have been involved in the conversations. The The goal here is to recognize and and then maybe establish a firm foundation that international religious freedom is not a partisan issue. That concern for people everywhere to enjoy the genuine freedom um, to, to express their religious views, whatever they might be, um, and to do so freely without the involvement um, of government would be would be a real blessing. So just want to um, extend our prayers to Sam Brownback and others engaged in this international religious freedom uh, meeting going on right now. All right. Joining us now, Ben Johnson, media reporter for The Daily Wire. You can follow him on Twitter at The Rights Writer. Ben, hey, welcome back. Good to be with you. Thank you so much, Carmen. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's um, let's take up the unfolding drama in South Africa. Um, I understand that the former president, Jacob Zuma, began serving a 15 month sentence on Thursday for contempt of court. Um, and in the aftermath of his reporting for uh, jail time, looting began in some parts of South Africa. And that has resulted in the deaths of at least 72 individuals and the arrest of hundreds. What is going on? Yeah, and the situation just keeps getting worse, unfortunately. Uh, Jacob Zuma was uh, president, as you mentioned, of South Africa for nine years. And he had a a very dedicated, uh, if not to say almost cult-like following. And uh, when he was when he was president, he was accused very credibly of being corrupt. When he went on trial, he refused to testify. So he was held in contempt of court. They handed down a sentence of 15 months, and uh, when he was when he was uh, taken away, the uh, followers of Jacob Zuma, according to many people in the intelligence agencies, started to shut down the highways. Uh, they they burned multiple trucks. Uh, they stoned ambulances. They attacked anyone in order to shut down the veins of the uh, South African nation. And then rioting and looting began, first in uh, his power base in uh, what's known as KwaZulu-Natal province, which is Johannesburg and the surrounding area, also in Durban, which is in Gwateng province. And uh, it spread throughout multiple cities. Uh, the, uh, the rioting, the looting that uh, they're seeing is of such an unbelievable character that, for example, when uh, when they were, they were uh, looting one particular shopping mall in the Johannesburg area, people were so reckless uh, about this that they were simply trampling one another. The greatest death toll uh, that we've had so far is that uh, looters were being trampled by other looters. Mm. Uh, but, but, uh, among some of the things that were taking place, there was a, a gentleman who was serving in a medical clinic treating people who had these injuries, and the mob descended and began attacking the clinic itself. Uh, Mm. They had people there. A six-year-old child had been shot. Uh, They were particularly targeting foreigners and stabbing foreigners. Uh, So uh, there was a a very gruesome death toll. But he said, 
what he saw that day, the hatred that he saw that day and the injuries that he saw that day gave him a glimpse into hell. The uh, the quotes in um, in the piece posted by you at uh, dailywire.com are, I mean, the quotes are chilling. The, the scenes are horrific. We are in war mode, um, glimpses of hell. Uh, we're going to return to this conversation with Ben Johnson in just a moment and see if we can sort out some sense of um, maybe what precipitated this tremendous social devolution in in South Africa. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is my right. A right given by God. To live a free life. To live in freedom. Continuing my conversation with Ben Johnson. You can find him at Daily Wire. Dot com, the piece that I am uh, that I've got up right now, uh, authored by Ben, is called "A Glimpse into Hell: Socialist-Led Riots, Royal South Africa." Ben, let's talk about um, the the status of things in South Africa. Talk with us about the percentage of the population who are unemployed, what the average South African is living on, um, and criticisms of the of the current regime. Yeah, it's, it's a really grim situation there. Uh, these began as political riots. Uh, so these were the followers of Jacob Zuma. Intelligence uh, in South Africa right now is looking for the exact extent to which it was Jacob Zuma's followers who started all of this. But even though they're the ones that it started with, it didn't end with them. It kept going into the general population because the population, unfortunately, is living in very uh, dire times. One in every three South Africans is unemployed. One in every five South Africans lives on less than $2 a day. And that's extreme poverty under uh, the United Nations definition. So it's, it's, a, it's a nation where people are hurting, where people are in desperate need. And uh, when you add on top of that a COVID pandemic, a political, uh, political situation that is very much uh, unstable, and the uh, fact that... Uh, the president of South Africa, Cyril Ramfosa, has just extended COVID lockdown for another two weeks, and things start to get out of control very quickly. Um, all right. So um, it, it looks like, uh, you know, the devolution of a once thriving, at least seemingly once thriving um, economy and nation state. Um, it's not the only one around the world that we are watching devolve. We talked um, we talked in the open this morning about what's going on in Cuba. We certainly have an eye on what's going on in in Haiti. Um, it does seem as if well, and, and in Afghanistan, I mean the the former president uh, George W. Bush, who does not often weigh in on what's happening um, and uh, does not often criticize. Uh, those in presidential leadership um, who follow him. Um, I mean, he openly criticized the Biden administration with real concerns about the withdrawal from Afghanistan, raising real concerns about the status of women um, and and others uh, who would be who have helped us as translators and uh, and in other ways um, and who were being left behind to be slaughtered. I mean, he just openly you know, said this is what's going to happen. And now the Biden administration has responded by saying, no, 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 we're not going to 
we're, we're, we're not going to leave people who helped us behind. But I don't, Ben, I don't see how we can evacuate every person from every place around the globe that's devolving into chaos right now. We can't. And you're right. Unfortunately, that means there's a lot of people who are assisting us in South Africa, in Pakistan, uh, in nations where we have been at war, are going to end up uh, harming, being harmed uh, by the, the population because of the fact that we have left them behind. Uh, we saw this everywhere that we've been in the past. We've seen in Vietnam, uh, among the Hmong people. We did evacuate a lot of those people uh, to the United States. There's a, long, there's a large Hmong population because they were allied with us in Southeast Asia. But uh, many of the people who supported us in that war were simply slaughtered. And those who supported us or who imbibed our values and said, yeah, I want more for my daughter. I want more for my situation. Uh, you were talking about the International Religious Freedom Conference with Sam Brownback. One of the uh, most powerful people who spoke there was the CABB. And, uh, of course, the CABB had been, uh, she had been sentenced to death because of the fact that she was a Christian mm. and allegedly openly expressed that while she was sitting at a well with other people. Uh, and uh, even that narrative is false. But people say, I don't want to live in that kind of a society. I want to live with freedom of conscience, freedom of religion places where my inalienable rights will be respected. I think if there's one takeaway from everything that we're seeing, it's that uh, the United States truly is exceptional in that way. The, the character, the genius of the West, uh, the, um, the way that we have learned to manage our differences among people who are of different faiths, uh, that is not the rule in much of the rest of the world. And so that's another reason for us to be thankful for our freedom, and uh, to be guardians and defenders of freedom elsewhere, wherever we see it. I'm reading a headline right now out of Reuters um, that the Taliban uh, has seized control of a major border crossing with Pakistan. Uh, One of the most important objectives uh, as they uh, continue to advance rapidly across the country as U.S. forces pull out um, and apparently this is, uh, you know, going to control trade routes to the sea. Um, I, I just the devolution of what is happening around the world. You know, I, I think that there are lots of people weighing in on the reasons why it's happening in many places. It certainly seems as if our ability to influence the, the American ability to influence what is happening um, is in serious question. Like it doesn't seem as if we are exerting exerting any kind of respected influence in places like the ones that we have listed this morning. And you're right. We've always had a very limited uh, ability, obviously, in Cuba, even though we've led uh, by example as much as we can in that island nation. But uh, in other nations, uh, I think that uh, where we have overextended ourselves uh, and we have have tried to reorder society, what we found is that uh, a lot of what was being imposed didn't jive with the values of the people who lived there. Uh, there were there were a, a limited number of people who were following us, but that uh, in the rest of society there was very strong support for uh, a, a different set of values, a very different kind of society when it came to things like religion, uh, freedom, when it came to uh, have the ability to choose your own faith, uh, the ability of women to get ahead in society openness, all of those kinds of things uh, are, are things that uh, we have one model, but much of the rest of the world uh, has taken another path. 
And the way that America has comported itself over the last several years, it's not clear that, uh, to a lot of people in the world that this is a society that they wish to emulate, uh, that we're doing mm. a better job amongst ourselves. We, we need to do a better job of, of loving one another, of caring for one another, of showing that we can come together across these really very small partisan debates and stop magnifying all of the, the fault lines between us in order to stand united as a great shining city on the hill. Yeah, so many things that we need to get on the same page about, um, you know, educating our educating our kids. And I mean, the list is so long, right? Can, caring for those who are uh, who are aging. I just yeah. I mean, we have so many issues right here at home. Ben, we got to leave it right there. I, I just genuinely appreciate your willingness to uh, to join us week in and week out um, and talk with us about the headline news of the day. Thank you for paying attention um, all day, every day to the to the things that are confronting us here in the United States and around the world. You guys can check out what Ben is working on, dailywire.com. You can follow him on Twitter at The Rights Writer. Um, ben, thanks as always so much. Keep doing the great work here at Faith Radio Network, and God bless you. Thank you so much. All right, friends, we will be right back. All right, we are um, uh, looking forward to a conversation with Amber Fogarty. Um, We're going to talk about... This really cool initiative and effort, um, I, I'll call it a ministry outreach. The, the ministry is called Mobile Loaves and Fishes, but the particular effort that we're going to look at is their development of this tiny home village for the homeless. And it's becoming a national model. It's, um, it's in Austin, Texas. And we just want to have a conversation about, you know, this response to homelessness in one particular community and what all of us might learn from it. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. When it comes to giving kids the freedom to make their own choices, are you afraid your children will make mistakes? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Let me ease your mind. Your kids will mess up. There's no doubt about it. But here's the good thing. It'll give you plenty to talk about. Use their mistakes as an opportunity to help them make better decisions in the future. Let the foolish decision be useful. When your son or daughter blows it, this is your chance to value them and love them even through the pain of their mistakes. Don't shame your kids or rescue them from consequences. Do you think your kids aren't ready to make their own choice? Of course they're not, but your teen's mistakes can be excellent teachers. Want more parenting help from Mark Gregston? Find encouragement through articles, books, and more at parentingtodaysteens.org. Joining me now, Amber Fogarty. Uh, she works with an organization called Mobile Loaves and Fishes in Austin, Texas. Amber, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you so much, Carmen. It's great to be here. It is wonderful to have you. All right, so um, we are energized and enthused by what is happening through this um, tiny home village. Uh, just outside of Austin or maybe inside of Austin city limits. I don't exactly know where it's located, but tell us about the this planned community, this master planned community. Tell us 
who lives there and how this all works because it's it's an inspiring model for others. Absolutely. So Mobile Loaves and Fishes created a village called Community First Village, and it is just outside the city limits of Austin. And currently it is a 51 acre master planned community that lifts people who have experienced long-term homelessness off the streets into a permanent home and a supportive community. And what we believe at Mobile Loaves and Fishes is that the single greatest cause of homelessness is the profound catastrophic loss of family. And so the village is designed to create family, to create community, to bring people together in relationship and to support people who have experienced tremendous trauma and suffering in their lives um, and provide for them a place where they are fully and wholly known and fully and wholly loved. And I, I love the stories that are um, in, included in the in the feature that um, you know that I had the opportunity to read related to this from Austin 360. Um, uh, one of the things that I really appreciated was the window into the the people kind of behind the whole thing. Alan and Trisha Graham. Can you introduce us to them? And um, and because what I want people to get is that like all of this grew out of one individual's sort of transforming experience with Jesus. And then that's just extended and extended and extended and is now genuinely leading to real redemption in the lives of so many people. Absolutely. So we always say that mobile loaves and fishes started with a tiny mustard seed of an idea and only God knew what it was going to grow into. And we all marvel at what he has done and how he has grown this ministry over the last 23 years. Alan went on a church retreat all those years ago and really was moved and inspired and really knew that God was calling him to do something with his life uh, that he had never imagined. And so the tiny mustard seed of an idea really began with taking a minivan out on the streets with a group of his friends and connecting human to human, heart to heart with people experiencing homelessness, feeding them, taking, you know, meals out there, getting to know people, getting to know their stories. And Alan is a serial entrepreneur. And so pretty quickly after those first few times out on the streets, he got a vision in his head of a food truck. And he thought about that as a way that we could get food from people who have abundance to people who lack abundance. And all along the way, you know, God has just continued to show up around every corner. And we started, you know, in a green minivan, which transformed into, you know, one catering truck, which has now multiplied into 12 catering trucks across the city of Austin. So every night of the week, uh, volunteers from churches across our city are out on the streets and under bridges and visiting people in urban camps. And what we do on those food trucks has nothing to do with food. It has everything to do with that human-to-human, heart-to-heart relationship and opportunity to look someone in the eye, uh, to know their name, to hear their story, to pray with them, and to let them know how loved they are. And that this beautiful faith community in Austin, Texas, um, is showing up for them. Alan and Trisha are two of the most extraordinary servant leaders I've ever met in my life. They have sacrificed in so many ways. And when people hear the story of Mobile Loaves and Fishes and they hear what Alan and Trisha and their family have done, it really is a story that says us 
you know, what is God asking of me? Because all God asked of this family at the beginning was to go out and feed people, to go out and connect to people. And that's something that every one of us can do. And so we look at our work at Mobile Loaves and Fishes as a great invitation. It's an invitation to each of us to really search our hearts and ask, what is God asking you to do with your life, with the gifts and talents he gave you? How is he asking you to serve his people? And when you step out in faith like that, you never know what that tiny mustard seed will grow into. And Mobile Loaves and Fishes is a beautiful manifestation of that. Okay, so one of the really unique features of this, because there's people listening right now who are like, I'd, I'd really like to like go and see that for myself. I'd like to check it out. It's hard for me to, you know, imagine, wow, I mean, these these people lived in this, you know, 3,000 square foot home in a in their own gated planned community. And now they live in a 399-square-foot tiny home in the midst of a very different kind of community. You know, who who are these people behind this? What is this ministry? What does this look like? How is it fleshed out? There's people asking those questions right now. I tell people about the community in because I, this is a part of this story that I find just brilliant. Like, this is a brilliant way to get people, give people the opportunity to come and see what's happening. Yeah, so on site at Community First Village, we have the Community Inn, which provides the opportunity for people to come and experience Community First Village for themselves. And you can stay in an RV or a tiny home and really just have the opportunity to experience the goodness of Community First Village. You can come and volunteer. You can shop in our on-site market where we feature the beautiful products that our neighbors make in our art program, our jewelry making program, um, across all of these various programs that we've created to help our neighbors um, experience the dignity of work and earn a dignified income. But staying at the Community Inn is, you know, it was one of the, the brilliant ideas of Alan and others in our community who said, we're going to create this really special place and we want to, we want to create a place that is open to the community, that's available for people, not just in Austin, but beyond. So we have people from all over the world who come to visit Community First Village, some of them because they desire to replicate our model in their own city. Others because they are curious about tiny homes, others because they are coming to be of service, they're coming for a mission trip um, or just to volunteer with their family at the village. But it is a great way to be able to experience the day-to-day -day life of the village, to get to know our neighbors who call Community First Village home. And the way that I like to describe it is that when you, when you come to Community First Village, you feel community, you feel the love that exists on this 51 acres. And staying at the inn gives you a front row seat to that. It gives you the opportunity to feel enveloped in the love and care that exists within this community. It's it's such an extraordinary uh, place and testimony. We're going to continue this conversation with Amber Fogarty in just a moment. Um, if you want to read more and see pictures, you could go to austinmonthly.com. There's a feature there, Community First. Village celebrates its fifth anniversary. Um, more on Community First and Mobile Loaves and Fishes next. Mm -hmm. 
All right. I want to give you the website, MLF, that's for Mobile Loaves and Fishes, MLF.org. If you want to look for the Community First page or the Community First Village, I encourage you to do so. That has been one of the topics of our conversation with Amber Fogarty um, from Mobile Loaves and Fishes in Austin, Texas, MLF.org. I want to read a couple of paragraphs, Amber, from um, the piece in Austin Monthly, because there's this great quote in here um, uh, from, uh uh-huh, I have to scroll back, isn't that terrible, Alan Graham, and he says this, homelessness is like a traffic roundabout. There's multiple roads that lead in, like adverse childhood experiences, mental health issues, addiction, but the superhighway into this is catastrophic loss of family. Most folks end up on the street because they've lost their support systems. That's why uh, we're not a transactional model um, that provides services and then sends people on their way. We want them here for life. Um, and so you really are, I mean, you've highlighted this already, but there really is an emphasis on building permanency and community. Uh, and you've talked a little bit about the litany of resources that folks can access uh, at that Community First Village. Um, and I think that that is um, it's really, really helpful. This takes a person like Mr. Graham who has an entrepreneurial spirit. It also takes people like the Grahams who are willing to move into community um, with others. Talk about the missionals. We refer to the missionals as the secret sauce of Community First Village. So our missional neighbors are people who are called by the gospel to live in community with our neighbors who have experienced homelessness. So from the beginning of Community First Village, the the goal was to have approximately 20% of the community be missional, be people who have gone through an in-depth discernment process and who have said, I believe that God is calling me into this life of service. And so I am going to live in Community First Village. I am going to become family to the neighbors who live there. And I can't tell you how extraordinary these men and women are. Um, We have such a diverse group of folks. Uh, We have folks who are retired. We have folks who are school teachers. You know, we have a hairdresser, a massage therapist. Uh, teachers. It's such a phenomenal group of people um, who have said yes to God's call in their life, who have discerned that they are called to do God's work in this particular way, by living in community and by showing up day after day in deep relationship with people who have suffered and struggled, quite frankly, in ways that are hard for most of us to imagine. The kind Mm -hmm. of suffering and the kind of trauma that our neighbors have experienced uh, really breaks your heart. Alan uh, does a podcast, which I highly recommend, and you can also find a link to that on the Mobile Loaves and Fishes website. It's called The Gospel Con Carne, The Gospel with Meat. And during those podcast episodes, he interviews neighbors and they talk about their stories. They talk about where they have been and what they have experienced in their lives. And it really gives us an opportunity to understand just how resilient they are, that they have survived things that that most of us can't even fathom. 
and they're resilient. And I believe, quite frankly, they're the wisest people I've ever had the opportunity to know. And I thank God daily that I have the opportunity to be in deep relationship with our neighbors, to get to know them and to learn from them because they have so much to teach us. All right, now I'm on the page for uh, Gospel Con Carne podcast. Again, you can find it at the Mobile Loaves and Fishes website, mlf.org. Um, I also um, clicked on like area locations where um, I could find the food trucks today. Um, so that's really cool. You can literally like print out an itinerary. But one of the other cool things um, on uh, on the site um, is this just information about uh how to get your basic needs met in your city. So there's this basic needs map. For those of you that live in, you know, let's say you live in the Twin Cities and you're thinking to yourself, you know, I recognize that homelessness is a real challenge and a real problem where I live, um, but the people are not a problem. The people are experiencing real challenges, uh, having their basic needs met, and then have complicated histories and other life controlling issues that are preventing them from at this point being able to live in what you consider normal. Like, right, this is part of the challenge that we face is these definitions of normalcy. So I want you to check out what Mobile Loaves and Fishes is doing. I want you to look at the basic needs map, like what would be true in your community, location of restrooms that are available to everyone or showers or hand washing stations, which reminds me of the conversations that we've had um, here on the program about, you know, the people that are setting up hand-washing stations in cities across the country, um, charging stations for phones, basic basic needs map. And then that also gives you access to the Eating Apart Together initiative. So can you t- talk with us briefly? Because COVID, like, seemed to get people energized and interested in mapping some things out and particularly addressing um people people's real need for food in local communities across the country something that we've counted on maybe our schools to be points of um distribution for and in covid those schools were no longer points of distribution for for food for many many people talk with us a little bit about the way you guys collaborate with others because this is obviously a collaborative effort in austin absolutely you know covid pr- created so many challenges for all of us but particularly for people in poverty um, and people experiencing homelessness have, you know, they had really the rug ripped out from underneath them. So while all of us went into quarantine in the comfort of our homes, our neighbors who don't have homes had so much change in their lives. Um, Not only were they experiencing the trauma of being unhoused, but many of the resources that they relied upon, many of the places that they went to get fed, shut down completely or or change their operations. And so um, I think one of the things that has been helpful about COVID is it has raised awareness for people about some of these issues. Because in our day-to-day lives, sometimes we don't think about the fact that, you know, we, if we need something to eat, most of us can, you know, walk into our refrigerator or walk to our refrigerator, walk to our pantry. We can We can take care of our basic needs, the basic, basic need for food. And COVID really helped to elevate for folks, oh, wow, this this is really difficult. And we have a whole system for how some of these things happen, but COVID changed that. So you mentioned schools, even, you know, areas where people served in a congregate setting um, to serve food, all of that had to change. And 
I, I am grateful for the increased awareness, but deeply saddened by the increased suffering um, during you know, the pandemic. And you know, we're, we're, we're not out of the woods yet as far as that suffering. And um, our friends on the streets still struggle to meet their basic needs every day. One of the things that people say to us a lot at Mobile Lobes and Fishes, when they see you know, a camp under, under an overpass or under a bridge somewhere, um, they talk about how how much trash there is and how messy it is. And so I always just ask them to imagine what would happen if the trash pickup to their home stopped for several months. If if you weren't having the trash picked up or if you no, no longer had um, sewage service at your home, if you couldn't use the restroom at your home, um, how would that impact your ability to live um, to live in you know a place of cleanliness um, and health? And that's what our neighbors who are on the streets experience every day. And um, when you are on the streets, if you try to walk into any place to go to the restroom, if you try to walk into a restaurant, you often are chased right back out the door um, because they don't want you to come in there. And you see those signs that say, you know, restrooms are for paying customers only. Um, that's often targeted at our friends on the streets. And we don't have a lot of those basic needs provided in our communities. And I think COVID elevated our awareness of that. And I hope that as we continue to move out of the pandemic, that we remain focused on the fact that we, that we have to provide these basic needs as we're preparing to lift people off the streets into a home. I just love it. Um, I love what you're doing. I love the spirit in which uh, you're doing it. I love that you're inviting other people in. Um, for those of you that um, were trying to help me, me remember uh, the the ministry of Love Beyond Walls, Terrence Lester has been with us on a couple of occasions. Love Beyond Walls, the the group that is um, supporting efforts to uh, stand up hand washing stations in cities across the country. Um, so just thank you, Amber, for um, who you are. Please give our greetings to the rest of the folks on your team at Mobile Loaves and Fishes. Please celebrate with them how enthusiastic we all are uh, about what's happening there and the way that this can serve as a model for others across the country. We genuinely appreciate it. I will absolutely do that. And I would just invite your prayers for our ministry and for the men and women who are still experiencing homelessness throughout the country. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Amber, so very much. We're praying with you and for you. That's Amber Fogarty. Again, you can find resources about what we discussed today at Mobile Loaves and Fishes, which is mlf.org. We'll be right back. All right, we, uh, we, we're out of time this hour. Um, I just have loved the hour that we've spent together. Looking forward to spending another hour with you. Hour two of Mornings with Carmen up next. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.